working this year on our annual theme. It's building a sure foundation. We're talking about building a sure foundation for this congregation. Some of the things that we need to put in place and do to make sure that this congregation continues to be a force in the kingdom and to serve God in a pleasing way. And today we conclude the series that we've been on called Seeking Servant Leaders. Good leadership is essential for a sure foundation. And it's time for us to add some elders to the existing elders. Uh, We've grown. We've uh, grown larger. We've grown more complex and a lot of more ministries. And uh, the five current elders have decided now's a good time to uh, consider adding some elders. So that's why we're tackling this topic. And uh, it's part of a sure foundation. And just a little bit of review. In week one, we talked about an elder's job description Uh, What's an elder do? What are their duties? They're servant leaders. Uh, It's different from worldly leadership in many ways. Uh, And they watch us. They oversee. They shepherd. They mature people. They admonish. uh, They are an example. Uh, Week number two, we talked about an elder's resume. What's an elder supposed to be like? Uh, What kind of person is he supposed to be? And we looked at the two lists of qualifications, we usually call them in First Timothy and Titus, and summarized those to one simple sentence. Uh, an elder should be an exemplary Christian uh, that enables him to do the work of an elder. And last week we talked about an elder's selection. How do you select elders? Who decides who gets to be an elder and how's all that work? Uh, And we found that the New Testament doesn't say anything about that, doesn't give us any details or processes, uh, but we decided that the congregation ought to be involved in that uh, selection process, Uh, but the ultimate decision uh, lies with the current elders. So we talked about a process, and uh, we'll complete that here in the next few weeks and months. Today, we're going to talk about an elder's flock. Uh, That involves all of us. Uh, We are the flock, and they are the shepherds, and how do we relate to each other? Uh, Our relationship uh, as sheep and shepherds, how does that work? Well, we're going to go back to the Bible. I've mentioned this every week, and we're finding all our answers for this series uh, in the Bible. Very important to do that. Uh, And I think today it's especially important to remember that we're looking at Scripture, Because uh, some folks get confused here and start to bring in their history. Now let me explain. Uh, Sometimes when I teach about the fatherhood of God and what a perfect father God is, I realize that's hard for some folks uh, because they've had a bad father experience. They haven't had a, a loving father to model that picture for them. So when I, when I talk about God being a father, uh, that confuses them. It gives them a problem. It clouds their understanding. Well, today, as I talk about our relationship to elders, I realize that some people have had bad elder experiences. Uh, some people have been places uh, where there were a, a, maybe a domineering elder, maybe an unreasonable elder, Uh, maybe an elder or an elders that weren't knowledgeable of the Bible. Uh, And if you've had that experience, I'm sorry. Uh, I I can't change it. I'm sorry you've had that experience. I realize that exists uh, some places. I would say, A, they were probably not qualified uh, if they had those traits. 
Uh, but secondly, I'd say they were probably also doing the best he, they could. Uh, eldering's a hard job. And in a lot of congregation, it, the flock makes it more difficult. Uh, but I realize some people have had bad elder experiences. So I just want to say that because remember, we're looking at Scripture. And as we look at some of these Scriptures, some of you will remember uh, some bad experience. Say, well, I don't know about that. Well, we're looking at God's Word. So let's pay attention to it. And all we're going to do is look at some verses today. Our first verse uh, is 1 Thessalonians 5. 12 and 13. It's already been read for you once, but let's go through it again, and you can fill in your blanks if you're one of those kind of folks. Uh, Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and he said, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And live in peace with each other. Now you'll notice I put two colors of uh, blanks up there. And one applies to us and one applies to the shepherds. You've probably figured that out already. Uh, The ones we're looking at first are our responsibility. And that's respect. Hold them in high regard. In love. Now, I realize elders aren't perfect. Uh, not all elders are everything they might ought to be, and they make mistakes, and they do some wrong things perhaps. They're sinners saved by grace like the rest of us. But listen to what he says. You respect them. You hold them in high regard, in love, not because they're perfect, but because of their work. Oh, we often say that about a political position, such as the president, we say, uh, even if you don't respect the man, you respect the office. Well, that's kind of similar here in some ways. And Paul stresses that to us, uh, that you respect them, you hold them in high regard because of their work. And, and if you ever are tempted to not respect or not hold them in high think of what they do. You know, think of their work, go back to the duties, think of the uh, the task that that is. And if you do that well, you'll begin to have more respect and more regard for them. The verse also says that elders are over you. And it also says they admonish you. Now, we've already covered that in the duties. They're doing the job of a watchman. They're doing the job of a shepherd. Now, This is a point where some folks get real tense, especially if they've had a bad elder experience. They think, hold it now. Uh, What do you mean over me? What do you mean admonish me? You see, that's not the American way, is it? (laughs) The American way is nobody can tell me what to do. The American way is I've made my mind up and this is what I'm going to do and this is what makes me feel good. We don't like correction. That's what admonishment is. We don't like correction or admonishment. We don't like anybody over us, really. Uh, We think we want to be in charge. Well, this verse says that shepherds and everything else we've studied, we ought to understand this pretty well. They're over us. They admonish us. Well, what kind of things are involved there? What's included? Well, I can't give you a comprehensive list. I just go back to the duties. They're shepherds. They're watching for you. They're trying to get you to heaven, and they're going to give an account for it. We'll find out in a moment. 
So what would they admonish you for? Well, maybe attendance. An elder, that, that's part of the task. If they, they notice you haven't been regularly attending, they might come to you and point that out. And admonish you to try a little harder and be here a little. And you say, well, why? Well, if the sheep aren't eating, what's the shepherd supposed to do? Just sit there on the hill and watch them starve to death? No, a shepherd would try to go do something about that. Uh, If a sheep gets out on the fringes and and doesn't come in with the flock very often and just stays, strays further and further away, and the shepherd can see from his vantage point that there's a flock of wolves out there, got their eye on that sheep, what's a shepherd supposed to do? Say, well, I don't want to hurt his feelings. I'll just let him wander on off. Let the wolves get him. No, a good shepherd wouldn't do that. So we go back to the duties, and this begins to make sense. Uh, What if somebody was looking at a job that was the wrong job for their Christian growth? Well, somebody might say, well, who can tell me what a wrong job is? Well, your shepherd maybe. Somebody that's wise and experienced and has your uh, best interest at heart and wants to get you to heaven might come to you and say, I don't know about that kind of work for you. That may be the wrong direction. See, some of you are getting tense on this. You don't want anybody telling you anything. But that's what a shepherd does. They admonish. How about, let's try this one. How about if you want to use young people... Start dating the wrong person. You say, well, my parents already told me that. Well, good. That's what parents are supposed to do. But a shepherd might notice that too. A shepherd might come to you and say, that, that this doesn't look like a good thing for your Christian growth. Are you sure this is a wise decision? Yeah. So, so this gets a little personal, doesn't it? Well, it's all about the flock and, and watching and overseeing and maturing and admonishing. That's what a shepherd's supposed to do. I won't advocate this myself, but just to illustrate, I'll tell you old J.W. McGarvey, a famous old restoration preacher, he taught that elders ought to know what everybody makes money-wise and how much they put in the plate. And if it isn't enough, they ought to go to their house and straighten them out. Yeah. <laughs> See, you didn't get tense about that. You just laughed. You thought, well, that's preposterous. <laughs> well, McGarvey's reasoning was that can affect whether somebody gets to heaven or not, what kind of steward they are. And as a shepherd, that's my responsibility. Okay? You understand what admonishing and being over someone is. Look at that last sentence, though, there. Live in peace with each other. I didn't put that on the handout as a fill-in or anything, but that could be a whole sermon by itself. Uh, That could be a whole series by itself. Live in peace with each other. Uh, That's one of the best things we as a flock can do for our shepherds in our relationship to them. Uh, When I got out of college, I took a job with General Electric Company and a training program they had, and my first job was in an electrical switchgear plant uh, where we made control panels and big switchgear and all that. And I was over in an assembly area, and my job was to assign the jobs to the people on the assembly line, 
to make sure all the materials were there for that job and to make sure all the blueprints were there and everything so they were ready to work. Now, let me tell you a few things that made that difficult. Number one, they were on incentive pay. So they wanted to go as fast as they could to make more money. So if I didn't have the right materials there or the blueprint was wrong or I gave them a hard job, they didn't like it. And they protested, and that gave me a little bit of stress, I guess. A second thing was that the entire assembly line, all of them were women. Now, some of you modern folks think that that's discriminatory for me to say that. If you think that's discriminatory, I would suggest you've never worked in a manufacturing plant. Okay, So you go get a job in a manufacturing plant and work in an area with all women for a while and then come back and tell me if that's discriminatory. Uh, this is just facts, folks. Okay, So that added a little bit of stress. Now, add to this that I'm a 23-year-old kid. Okay, They like to pick on the new kid. They'll warm me out some days, but they, they added a little stress to the job. But here's the third thing. I started that job in 1971, and in 1969, the entire General Electric Company had had a huge strike, a very brutal, long-lasting, tough strike all across the country. And my assembly line was had a dividing line in the middle where you could get through it, but on one side were all union ladies, this side were all the scabs. They didn't talk to each other. It's been two years ago since the strike. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't have anything to do with each other. They wouldn't help each other. They wouldn't cross each other's paths. They had absolutely nothing to do with each other except to watch the other ones and to make sure that I wasn't giving the scabs better jobs than I was giving the union folks and vice versa. That added some stress, folks. They did not live at peace with each other in any sense of the word. That made my job a lot harder, a lot more unpleasant. Paul's talking about elders and the flock, and he says, live in peace with each other. Now, let's go to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. Obey them. Submit to their authority. They must give an account. Obey them so their work will be a joy, not a burden. Let me just go on with my story. When I got done with that assignment on the training program, they moved me to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And in Pittsfield, that that plant there, uh, power transformer plant, was the strongest union plant in America. And the shop that I worked at in that plant was a legend within the GE company. Okay, when I'd tell people for years later, oh yeah, I worked at the tank shop in Pittsfield, they'd say, you worked there. You know, everybody knew about it. It was a legend. It was a tough place to work. And there were horrible labor relations there. 
uh, the company hadn't done things right and the union hadn't done things right and they didn't get along. Uh, I had two types of workers worked for me. I was a foreman there. Half of them were Italians. Half of them were Polish. Okay? And they picked on each other all the time. Pretty good-naturedly. But they didn't have much in common, except they did have one thing in common. They united in making life miserable for management. That was their goal in life. Okay? They worked hard at doing anything they could to make management's job tough. Okay? Now, I got a little bit of a break because I was a new kid and came in and they understood I was just going to be there a few months and it wasn't really my fault and, and all that. But I could tell you some stories about things they did to management. And I think about that every time I read this last part. Uh, so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. Those guys in Pittsfield wanted to make management harder. They wanted to make it a burden. That was their goal in life. And Paul says, when you, or the writer of Hebrews says, when you're dealing with shepherds, think about making their life easier. Making their work a joy. Okay, let's look at some of the key words. He says, obey and submit. Now, those two words bother some of us, don't it? Don't they? We don't like that idea. Here's another fleshly thing, American thing. We don't like obeying and submitting to people. So sometimes we say, well, it must be figurative somehow. That doesn't really mean we got to obey them and submit to them. Well, I checked Vine's dictionary. I checked the lexicons. I checked the Greek interlinear. And guess what I found? Obey means obey. And submit means submit. That's what the words mean. That's what he's telling us to do. Now, I realize it's not absolute. Uh, Acts 5.29 says we've got to obey God rather than men. So if our elders for some reason ever told you to do some immoral act or something illegal or something like that, then we'd say, no, I don't think so. They're not God. They're elders. But in their role as elders, in this, remember we talked about admonishing and some of that stuff, it says to obey them, to submit to them. They have authority, the writer of Hebrews says. Once again, they don't have absolute authority. They're not the authority. Christ is the head of the church. But as shepherds for Christ, they watch and protect and mature, and the sheep are supposed to obey. That's the way life works best. Now, where do we have to obey and submit to elders? Let's think about that for a moment. You see, when things are black and white, if there's a scripture that says something black and white, and really you don't need elders for that. You know, if somebody asks, do I need to be baptized? Don't need an elder to tell us that. Mark 16 says, if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. Well, you got to be baptized. What we do need elders for, what we select them for, what the work of shepherding is, is in areas of opinion and judgment. That's what we pick them for. That's what Christ, uh, that's what the Holy Spirit raises them up for. That's what Christ ordains them to do, is to rule and direct 
and care and shepherd and be an example and oversee. That's what they're supposed to do. So when they rule, using that word in opinion or judgment areas, we jump right up and start faulting them. Well, that was a bad decision. I don't have to do that. That's just your opinion. Well, that's all they're supposed to rule on is opinions and judgments. They don't rule on black and white scripture. And in doing that, the odds say, and I don't think this is quite the right number, but the odds say if you're ruling in areas of opinion and judgment, you're probably wrong half the time. You know, there is no perfect answer. Elders got to use their wisdom. They got to consider everything they know. They got to consider the people. They got to reckon everything in, realizing that they're going to have to give an account. That's when you think about their duties. That's when you respect them in highest regard because of their work, when you realize that. Now, I'm not saying you just have to say, okay, fine. If you disagree with something, the elders decide we're going to do something this way or we're going to stop doing something this way. Uh, if you disagree, go see them. The door's open most of the time. Listen, they'll listen to you. Uh, you can listen to them. You'll hear their wisdom, their reasons. But when you're done with that, then you submit. Okay? That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, Vine's Dictionary says submit means to yield or withdraw in some sense. Okay? So if you disagree, you go talk to them, get their reasoning and all of that. And if they don't choose to change it, then you submit, you yield, you withdraw. That's Vine's interpretation of it. Tandy's interpretation of that is you shut up. You're done. You don't go talk to other people. You don't say, what do you think about what the elders said about this? You don't try to get a campaign going and stir things up and make trouble. That's not living at peace. Neither do you continue to argue. Neither do you hold that as a grudge and bring it up every time you think about something. That just makes their job a burden. It just stirs up dissension. You don't do that. When they use their authority in matters of opinion and judgment, you obey, you submit. They're the ones going to have to give an account. You know, you think about that giving an account thing. I, I used to go to Wichita State basketball games all the time, had season tickets. I sat on row 26, section Z. Great seat. And do you realize that I could see and make calls from row 26 that the referees messed up. <laughs> I could. I got them all right. I don't think I ever missed one from row 26. Okay. And I don't think they could hear me from row 26, but I, t I told them, you missed that one. Okay. Now, there's one difference there. Do you understand? I had absolutely no responsibility. I didn't have to give an account. Okay. These poor guys down there in the stripes, can they amen from David on this? They got 10,000 critics. They got 10,000 people they're giving an account to. Okay? You, you got to think about that a little bit. Okay, that's what the writer here says. Uh, obey them. They got to give an account. Make their work a joy, not a burden. Okay, finally, let's go to 1 Timothy. 
First Timothy five nineteen. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. That's kind of a strange verse, isn't it? Paul's writing to the young preacher Timothy, the evangelist that traveled different young churches. And he says, Timothy, don't entertain an accusation. Don't, don't listen to it. Don't give it credence. Don't pay attention to it. Unless there's two or three people that bring it up. Now let's think about the reason for that. How would the wolves best get at all the sheep to get rid of the shepherd? See, the shepherd's a problem. The shepherd's sitting up there with the crook and this big stick, and if you try to mess with the sheep, he'll chase you off. Okay. So if the wolves could figure out how to get rid of the shepherd, sheep are pretty easy picking. Okay. So Paul understands the, the principle of that, and he says, you don't want Satan to get in and start attacking the shepherds. And Satan, I don't know if you've noticed this, he doesn't ever di- attack directly. He uses somebody to do that for him. He gets somebody that hadn't paid attention to the first two verses we've looked at. He gets somebody that's still got a grudge about some decision. He gets somebody that doesn't want to obey and submit. He gets somebody that doesn't respect and treat them in highest regard. And they come up with something, some kind of troublesome talk. And they want to tell somebody else about it. Let's stir this up. Let's get a dissension going here. And Paul says, don't listen to it. Just tell them, whoa, I don't want to hear that. Somebody comes up to you and says, you know what Albert did the other day that I just thought was really wrong? Oh, whoa, I don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. If it's a problem, I mean, if somebody really did something wrong, and a lot of people know about it, okay, then it's a problem. We've got to deal with it. But Paul puts this safety gap in there. He says, if one person comes, don't mess with it. Okay? Now, there may be somebody like that. But if all the rest of the sheep understand 1 Timothy 5.19, it'll never be a problem. If we don't listen, then that troublemaker can't get trouble started. Okay? That's the principle of 1 Timothy 5.19. All right. Now, all these green and red things, let's summarize. I put them in the two lists, and you may have been doing this as you went along. If not, you're probably saying, well, why didn't you tell me we were going to make a list? I'd have been writing them over there. If we look at it all together, all of the words that we've seen, we see that shepherds are over us, they admonish us, they have authority, they must give an account. And the flock respects their shepherds, regards them highly, loves them, obeys them, submits to them, and doesn't listen to accusations. Now you say, well, that sounds kind of ideal world. Well, that's good. We need to know what the ideal world is. A congregation that operated like this and understand what shepherds do and behave like a flock ought to aren't going to have problems. They've got a sure foundation. That's what we're after here. Now, uh, there's no verse for this, but let me just throw my advice out there. Elders aren't perfect. 
You know, they're sinners saved by grace. They make mistakes sometimes. They make wrong calls sometimes. They don't use the right words sometimes. They don't suit everybody all the time. But they've still got responsibility for the flock. They take it seriously. They work hard at it. They've got more info than you do. They know more things than you do. They've talked to other people about things. But mainly, they have the responsibility. So if you're sitting on row 26, take it a little easy on the elders. No verse that says take it easy on them or understand, but all these things we've been looking at say the same thing. All right. That's the relationship of elders and the flock. Now, I said I'd answer some questions, and I got a few and had some from past uh, situations like this. So let me go through some facts about elders, frequently asked questions about elders and their selection real quickly here at the end of our series. Uh, Question one, does a man have to be a deacon before becoming an elder? No. Easy answer, no. The Bible doesn't say anything about progression or promotion or anything else. Might happen a lot of the times, but no, not necessary. Number two, how old should an elder be? Well, it doesn't say. It's up to us, up to the congregation's good judgment. Uh, It does say they have children, and those children should be believing and obedient. So certain age of children, I don't know what that age is. My personal opinion is if they have very young children, uh, I think fathering is a full-time job. I don't think somebody with young children they're raising has time uh, to do justice to the job of elder and father. Uh, The family needs to be pretty close to raised, I believe, before a man would uh, find time to be an elder. It also says not to be a new convert, not to be a novice. Uh, They ought to be mature. Uh, So some time should have gone by in their Christian walk before we consider a man old enough to be an elder, but it doesn't say. Number three, can a preacher be an elder? Uh, yes, definitely yes. The New Testament pattern says that. First Timothy 5.17 uh, says the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So Paul said there's some elders whose they work at preaching and teaching. Uh, in a large church, I don't think it's a good idea. Personally, I told you last week, I don't think it's a good idea. I think there is an inherent danger in the man that gets to stand here and talk for 30 minutes every week uh, to kind of de facto become the head elder. Uh, Just a little too much influence. I don't think that's a good relationship or a good danger to put yourself under. Certainly in a smaller congregation, I understand. A lot of times the minister's the best qualified to be an elder and is necessary to be so. But yes is the answer. Number four, any requirements for an elder's wife? We mentioned this briefly a couple of times. Uh, technically, depending on how you read the Bible, it really doesn't say. I think it does, actually. Uh, in in First Timothy, there's a list of what the elders are supposed to be like, then what deacons are supposed to be like, and then it says in the same manner, their wives. Now that may apply to both elders and deacons. It may apply just to deacons, I don't know. But it doesn't matter because it does apply <laughs> to elders and deacons. We're just common sense tells you that. If deacons' wives 
have that responsibility, uh, elders' wives even more so. And what the verse says, 1 Timothy 3.11, it says, In the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. That's a pretty high standard. Uh, and we can see the reason for all of that, especially the not malicious talkers, uh, because of things that elders and deacons get involved in. Deacons get involved in personal finances and problems in families and all kinds of things. Uh, a wife's got to learn how to keep her mouth shut. Well, she doesn't have to learn that. She needs to know that. Okay? If she hadn't learned that yet, her husband shouldn't be an elder or a deacon. If and when she learns that, he might be qualified. Number five, what does not given to wine mean? Uh, That's the way it is in most of our translations. Literally, the term meant not linger over wine. Now, you've got to understand we don't have time for the whole culture thing, but it was a way different culture back then. There was a very low alcohol percentage uh, in wine. Uh, That was all they could do. And in that culture, wine drinking was safer than water drinking. In fact, Paul told Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Uh, the wine, however, was such low alcohol, it was probably closer to grape juice or, or pop than we consider wine today. And so what this meant was somebody that lingers long over wine spends all day drinking wine until it finally affects them, makes them drunk. Uh, that was in that culture. Now, in this culture, I think we live in a different culture. And my personal opinion, my personal advice is that an elder, a deacon, ought to be a teetotaler. Uh, Why? Because that's the way the world looks at it. We're supposed to have a good reputation with outsiders. Some of of you are saying, well, people don't bother somebody to drink a little wine. Well, you ask somebody to describe a real upright guy, and you know what they'll say? He doesn't smoke or drink or cuss or anything. That's the way the world evaluates it. Yeah, they may tolerate it. They may say there's nothing wrong with it. But deep down, they know there is in this culture. They are to be above reproach. They are to be the best example they could be. So I don't think this even ought to be a, a problem of discussion. Number six, does husband of one wife exclude divorced or widowed men? Now, literally, I told you when we did the qualifications, that term means a one-woman man. Okay? It's about moral purity is what it's about. It's about a devotion to one's wife instead of being a womanizer. It's not about their current status of marriage. It's about what kind of man they are. Now, it means not a womanizer. It means sexually pure. It means all of that. Now, let me point out a couple of things. The Bible does allow divorce, okay, for one reason, okay? If it's allowable, then why should it disqualify a person? The Bible also allows remarriage after the death of a spouse, so why would that disqualify Some people read that verse and say, well, he's got to have one wife. He's got to always have had one wife. He's got to have, and if the wife dies, then he can't be an elder anymore. That's not what that verse says. The passage says, be a one-woman man. Okay. Now, 
if that situation ever arose where a man that was widowed or widowed and remarried or divorced for the scriptural reason, if that man was a potential elder, what would we have to think about? Well, first of all, we'd think about the purpose of the qualifications. What are the qualifications? So they can do the duties. Well, can he do the duties? Think about that. If a great elder, his wife passed away, how does that disqualify him from being a great elder? It changes his marital status from married to widowed, but it doesn't change how he does the duties. May make it a little tougher. He doesn't have the support at home and all of that. But if he's willing to serve as an elder and the congregation is willing to keep following him, I don't want, don't think one woman man disqualifies him. Now, how about any other cases? Maybe somebody divorced for a scriptural reason long ago and maybe remarried or, or something. What's the question? Well, I'd add this to the question. What do others think? Does he have a good reputation among outsiders? Do they understand why this happened and how it happened? Is the flock willing to follow him? This is, a, this is why God left it up to congregations. Okay. I, I can think of, I, we could spend from now till next Sunday dreaming up hypothetical scenarios. And it all come down to, well, what's the flock there think? What's his reputation with outsiders? How, how does this work there? So not a situation that I know of uh, here, but I, I think that's the answer to that question. And each congregation ought to figure it out for themselves. Number seven, what does believing or obedient children mean? Uh, I've actually had somebody ask me, does that mean you've got to have more than one child to be an elder? Since it says children. And I've answered it this way. How many of you have children? Man, we got a sterile bunch in here. <laughs> How many of you have children? Okay, almost everybody. Now, did anybody that held up their hand have one child? Yeah. Okay, that's the way we answer the question. I've got a child, I've got children. That's what the verse says. They've got to have believing children or obedient children. So, what's it mean? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean perfect children. If it means perfect children, then we got no elders. Okay, <laughs> I know some of them appear perfect, uh, but as far as perfect children go, there have been very few of us. Um, <laughs> some of the, you know who's laughing the hardest is the old time Northsiders. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. Uh, okay, Titus, maybe verse means a little bit better to us. It says they believe and they're not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Okay, uh, Timothy, another translation says they obey him with proper respect. Okay, you got to decide what that means. And we can talk about an extreme here and an extreme there. Uh, Somewhere in between there, we got to decide, has, has the guy done a good job of raising his children? Okay. Second point on that, kids have free will when they get to a certain age. They get to choose whether to rebel or not. 
Parents can do everything right, do everything that they know how to do and all they can right, and the kids still get to choose. Okay? Listen to this now. If having a rebellious child means you could not be an elder, then God could not be an elder. He had two perfect children. He did everything perfect for them, and they chose to rebel. That's what free will does. Third point, what's the purpose of the qualifications? That's why we spent that week on that. To do the job. Does a congregation feel the man can do the job? Will they follow him? And we take this point of having believing and obedient children under advisement and say, yep, he's done a pretty good job. We understand how this happened and how that happened and something else, but we'll follow this man. Uh, He's done a good job and we'll follow him. All right, those are some of the questions I got and answered quickly, hopefully. Okay, the process we're going to follow. We talked about this last week, but here's what we're going to do. We've already studied the Bible now for four weeks. We're going to ask you to submit names. You've got a little form uh, in your handout, hopefully. And they've got some everything summarized on there, and it's got a place to write some names. Uh, the purpose of that is to see who is recognized as leaders. Then uh, the elders will look that list over. They'll determine by talking to some of them uh, who is willing and who is qualified. We don't know all of that for sure. Then they will come back to us and submit their selections to the church and say, we believe this man or these men uh, are able to be an elder and we want them to be an elder. And uh, that will get the response from the congregation. If somebody knows something that nobody else knows that disqualifies a man, we want to know about that. And uh, once we get through all that, we'll publicly appoint new elders in a few weeks. Uh, so your part in the process, submit names by April the 8th. That's two weeks from now. We'll mention it again next Sunday for folks who are out of town this week. Uh, we'll have the forms outside on the information center, but uh, turn them in by April the 8th and we'll get on with the process. All right, I've enjoyed studying this topic with you. I think it's a necessary Uh, One of the most important topics we can talk about as we prepare to add new leaders here at Northside. If you're here this morning and need to respond to the Lord's invitation, uh, put Christ on in baptism, we'd be happy to help you with that. If you have any other public need, a request for prayers or something like that, we'd be glad to help you. Let's stand and sing and you come to the front.